welcome again to the Migration and Diaspora podcast, a show where we discuss everything migration. Today I'm speaking with a true powerhouse in the field of migrant rights in Asia, William Goyce. William is the current regional coordinator of Migrant Forum in Asia, MFA, a regional network of grassroots organizations, trade unions, faith-based groups, migrants and their families, and individual advocates in Asia working together for social justice for migrant workers and their families, represented in 26 countries in Asia and the Middle East. William is the former chairperson of the Global Coalition for Migration. Over the last 20 years, he has been at the forefront of international advocacy efforts, engaging and influencing international and multilateral processes to promote rights-based migration and development policies. And he was also the co-chair of the Global Forum on Migration and Development, GFMD, uh, Civil Society Days in 2011, which is timely because where, as of when we're recording this on the 6th of January, the 2021 Civil Society Days are coming right around the corner. William is also a member of the steering committee of the Asia Democracy Network and the Regional Executive Committee of the Asia Pacific Movement on Debt and Development. And he was the convener of the Solidarity for Asian People's Advocacy, working on labour migration. He is also a member of the World Bank-led Global Knowledge Partnership on Migration and Development, or NOMAD by its uh, acronym. And at the regional level, William represents MFA in the Abu Dhabi Dialogue, which is a forum for dialogue and cooperation between Asian countries of um, labour origin and destination, I think about 18 countries, and the Colombo process, which is mainly comprised of Asian labour migration countries of origin. We're so lucky to have William here today with us to shed light on the issue of wage theft in Asia that many migrant workers have been exposed to. He gives us the lowdown on the scale and nature of the problem, where it's happening, what its impacts are on migrant workers and their families and communities of origin especially in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And he walks us through the Justice for Wage Theft campaign he's been leading and the actions that he is calling on countries of origin and destination to take to both address the immediate effects of wage theft, as well as to build back better protections for migrant workers as we emerge from the pandemic. William is such a powerful advocate for migrant rights, and it's an absolute pleasure to have him on the show. So without further ado, Here's our conversation. Okay, William, welcome to the show. How are you and where are you calling in from? Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to the show. Uh, I'm good. It was good to get the break over the over Christmas and the first part of the new year. Uh, I'm calling in from the Philippines where I am based, where the regional office of Migrant Forum Asia is based. I was going to say one of my favorite cities, probably one of my favorite countries rather than cities, but but I do actually appreciate the Manila as a city as well. I think it gets a lot of bad press, but I think it's really the beating heart of the country and it's very Asian, Asia Pacific city to me. And it's a lot warmer than where I am now in, in cold, dark England. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell, tell us a bit about your own migration and diaspora story, first of all, please. Well, I've been... Uh... I've been in Manila. I first came here in 1994. I was, I am a Pakistani national by by citizenship. I still am, uh, and uh, I I used to be involved with the student movement, with the 
Christian student, Catholic student movement, uh, which was very involved in, in social awareness and social concerns kind of thing, social justice issues. I had moved to Hong Kong in 94, uh, 94 and uh, with the Asia Pacific office of the student movement there. And then uh, somewhere uh, after that, I moved uh, to the Philippines and I've been here since finished my master's here and then uh, started with MFA in, in something like 2003. Wow, fantastic. So you've, you've really done a bit of a tour of the whole Asian region, it seems. And so tell us a little bit, I know you wear many hats. So tell us, I suppose, first of all, about your work with the Migrant Forum in Asia. And then also, also tell us about a few of the other hats that you wear. Well, uh, Migrant Forum Asia is a kind of regional network of grassroots organizations that work on the concerns of migrant workers. It's been made up of migrant communities, uh, trade unions, academics, uh, human rights organizations. So it's a very big kind of partnership of uh, largely grassroots organizations that work uh, from service delivery to migrants from immediate kind of case handling work, counseling and things like that to international policy advocacy at the UN and things like that. So at the regional office, the regional secretariat of which I am the regional coordinator, a lot of what we do is create this kind of platform for cross-learning, cross-fertilization of ideas, joint strategies and campaigns, largely to advance the rights-based approach to labor migration governance. Most of our work is around low and medium skilled workers in the region. uh, And uh, that's where we try to uh, mainstream migrant rights, not as a sectoral kind of group rights, but as, as rights that cut across uh, all other rights of, uh, of uh, that social movements are involved in. So we work more as a social movement in the region. And, that, and that's how, in some ways, we connect with many of the other uh, networks in the region. So for example, uh, MFA and I am a member of the Asia Pacific Sustainable Development uh, Platform, uh, part of the Asian Democracy Network. Uh, we are part of, uh, and we, as MFA, spurred other networks like the Lawyers Beyond Borders, ASEAN Asian Parliamentarians Caucus on Migrants. So these are kind of, and the whole idea was to to not go in inward looking at into migrant migration issues as a kind of sectoral issue, but to see it as a cross-cutting issue that cross-cuts across different themes, across different agendas and things like that. So we do engage at very many different levels. And it's a it's been quite a quite a feat in that sense of law because over the years the secretariat or the network has been able to get engaged in a lot of policy areas for change as well. That's really interesting William and I'm going to go slightly off script here and ask a question that's just come to my mind based on some of what, what I've learned about migration governance in Asia. What I've learned at least is that there aren't as many formalized migration governance frameworks at a regional level in the same way that you have, let's say, in the African continent and also in Europe. It seems there's the ASEAN, some of the work that ASEAN has done, and some of these processes, you know, Bali process, Colombo process. And I'm just curious for your take. What I've read is that the in the absence of this formalized 
regional migration governance. There is this kind of really vibrant civil society movement that to some degree fills that void. I was just wondering if what, what your take was on that or whether I've misread the what's what's out there. No, I mean, uh, there are, uh, it's not a misreading as much as to say that while there are governance kind of structures that, uh, that are there, like there's Colombo, there's ASEAN, there's Abu Dhabi Dialogue, there's Bali, uh, they have been not able to deliver as much as you would want them to deliver kind of thing, right? Uh, so the Colombo process, for example, is a grouping of countries of origin, but then these countries of origin are also competitors to each other for a labor market kind of thing. So for them to really agree on something and, and stand by that is, is not something something that we see often kind of thing. And in fact, uh, that has been one of its biggest challenge. It's the same with the Abu Dhabi dialogue kind of thing uh, where you, you have the Gulf countries on one side and all the countries of origin on the other side kind of thing. And they've never really seen each other in the sense of interdependence kind of thing, you know, mm. which is, which is largely which should have been the formula to look at or framework to look at considering the huge numbers of migrant workers going that go to the Gulf region kind of thing or you take um, uh, ASEAN for that matter while ASEAN has got a lot of resources pumped into it it is still 10 independent sovereign countries that really come together to deliver on anything substantive. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, the, the, while, the, while these structures are there, the delivery has been very poor. And so we as civil society have, uh, while we engage with them, our form of engagement with them is using the international frameworks that are there. So for example, what is delivered or spoken of at the Global Forum on Migration or Development or the international human rights standards, the international labor standards kind of thing or uh, the Global Compact on Migration. So these agreements which are committed to in some ways either morally or legally at the international level is what then is what we use to interact with both at the regional level and the national level. Uh, the other kind of framework that does exist also is bilateral agreements between countries of origin and destination. But then again, because these countries are seen as competitors in the in the labor market, these bilateral agreements tend to be on a sliding scale of protection of rights of migrant workers kind of thing. So you would have somewhere the, for the Philippines, which is able to negotiate let's say the best bilateral standard. And then after that, you'll have a sliding scale with somewhere Nepal or Bangladesh being at the bottom of it, a kind of thing in terms of what they are able to get within that uh, bilateral agreement. So that, that is why I think there's been a strong civil society kind of uh, engagement on this issue. That's really insightful, William. And I think that context and background provides a good segue to talk to the main topic of the day, which is about wage theft, in particular in the Asian context. So give us the lowdown, William. What, what is wage theft, first of all, and how does it relate to migration, particularly in the Asian context? MFA as a network, many of our organizations are grassroots organizations, both in countries of destination and origin and informal kind of organizations, particularly in countries of destination. They're just basically community groups, organizations informally set up with expats in them who want to help their own fellow citizens who, have, who, who might not have the same kind of uh, 
jobs or skill sets that they have. So when I'm saying experts, I'm saying the well-to-do kind of uh, my, uh, you know, uh, migrants in, in countries of destination, professionals, uh, high-skilled people who then tend to help the fellow citizens who are in the low-skill sector. Now, even before, much, much before the pandemic, in any given year, if we were to tabulate what was the highest number of uh, cases or violations in terms of abuse of migrant rights that we would document, it would be wage theft which is basically workers complaining of not getting their wages. And in some cases, they would not get their wages for two months, three months, two years, even we've got cases where workers don't get their wages for two years. And also there's, there's this whole aspect of non-payment of wages and uh, where workers have been, have can continue to still be in that situation because somewhere the promise that is being made by the employer that we will pay or portions of that, you know, of the of the pay wages is being given, you know, but not the full wage kind of thing. Accommodation and food is being given, but the wage is not being given. And so workers just hang on till something is given eventually kind of thing. So this, this is one issue in the non-payment of wages. The other issue is, of course, the end of service benefits. Many workers, after they finish their contracts, are not given the end of service benefits. And, and, uh, and employers have found huge ways or many ways of getting around these end of service benefits. So you can get workers who have spent 15, 20 years in a country of destination returning without any end of service benefits and things like that. So this was uh, this was anyway an existing kind of problem even before the pandemic. It is just that, and we used to call it, honestly, before the pandemic, we just treated it on a case-to-case -case basis within the network. Uh, uh, as cases came and as service providers, we handled, our members would handle those cases and, and look at, and document it as non-payment of wages. It is when the pandemic struck and uh, many workers, particularly in the Gulf, lost their jobs and were being repatriated kind of thing. Uh, and then we started getting complaints. Uh, we realized that some businesses were taking advantage of the repatriation flights as well and putting workers on those flights and repatriating them home. It's only then that the we saw uh, the, how exasperated the situation of non-payment of wages had become, you know, and that was, and for the first time in June of last year, we called it for what it is, wage theft, because it was pure and utter negligence on the part of employers and the state in, in governance and in doing due, due diligence and seeing that this does not happen. And, uh, and so we know that millions have been lost in terms of uh, remittances, in terms of development uh, assistance of, of, of family members kind of thing through the remittances and, uh, and millions of workers have returned with this kind of complaint. I mean, that's awful. And, and we, I mean, it just goes along with so many of the issues throughout the pandemic that have disproportionately affected uh, migrants around the world. And so particularly when we talk about uh, the Asian context, I mean, where where is this issue the most prevalent? Whom is it affecting the most? Look, the bulk of Asian migrant workers, labor, mig labor migrants go to the Middle East, the Gulf countries. Uh, that is, uh, and th this has been the trend since the 70s, uh, you know, that uh, that has been the big, biggest market. Then, of course, there are markets in Southeast Asia, like Korea, uh, like uh, 
Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, and then of course East Asia like Japan and uh, and, uh, and uh, South Korea. But we have had consistent complaints from from the Gulf region, from Malaysia. We've had uh, also complaints, and complaints have been coming in from from the, these particular kind of corridors kind of thing where workers have complained uh, and we've also have, we've been able to resolve issues in places like South Korea sometimes when they have come in the past but this has not become a big issue in the time of the pandemic but it has become a definitely a big issue in the time of the pandemic in the Gulf countries and in Malaysia. What are the root causes of this wage theft beyond of course migrant workers uh, gen- generally having your rights within the countries is it as is it a case of in many cases migrant workers not having formalized contracts is it a case of the laws just not being enforced perhaps you could give us some color on that a lot of what we are seeing in terms of which is largely because of the impunity of employees and the lack of the capacity of the state of the state in doing its due diligence in this regard the host country now we must also understand that a lot of the local a lot of the migrant workers are in the kind of low skill low wage sector kind of thing so there is a strong power dynamic between the employer and the employee uh, trade unions in the countries of destination have not yet fully taken up this uh, migrant workers within within their economies as as workers, you know. So, and if you take in the Gulf countries, that becomes even more aggravated in the sense of because many of these workers in the low wage sector don't take up the jobs that nationals take up, and so there is no kind of you know recognition of this kind of work as falling within the labor sector kind of thing. So there is no labor movement to look at this gross violation happening kind of and even when it is there because there is no affiliation between the migrant workers and the local workers it doesn't get taken up in that in that manner when there are in there are i mean legal ways to take this up there are mechanisms and things like that in the destination countries but like this uh, uh, they are just impossible for a low wage migrant worker to navigate you know, language is an issue. Uh, getting the you know, if, if because of there's no social network. If a if a if a local worker loses a job, he or she has a social network. He's got family. He's got his own accommodation. He's got a lot of resources. She's got a lot of resources to fall back on, and take up the complaint. If a migrant worker uh, lose uh, takes up a complaint all that social network the accommodation can be taken away by the employer uh, there there is no social network basically to go to and then he has to rely or she has to rely upon assistance from wherever he or she can get sympathy not really access to justice and this is this is the problem the whole navigating of the justice mechanism and even when they are able to get it they have to be accompanied by somebody because really making those rounds to the through the system becomes almost impossible for many workers in the low wage sector and so it, it's just an uphill task kind of thing it's so that, that migrant workers very very rarely want to come forward and even make complaints for just to give you how how uh, an example of how how complex the problem is in the in this in this process of the repatriation we wanted to do this kind of called migrant workers to say come forward and you know make your case and we'll try to see how to take it forward or make a complaint and things like that 
And I was surprised at the number of instances where repatriated migrant workers in the security and safety of their own country have been have come forward but are not willing to have their cases documented for fear of them being uh, uh, blacklisted and not have being able then to return to their employer you know, uh, the, because the employers have sent them back saying, we will call you when the situation gets better. So in that, in that hope, they would not want to make a complaint, even when there is, when they are in the security of their home, let alone, you know, if they were in the country of destination, if they make a complaint, they can lose their job, they get become undocumented and things like that. So there's so much that hangs over them by way of pressure and coercion that uh, that they don't want to make this complaint. You know, so I think this is something that we have to understand that kind of the social infrastructure, the labor labor uh, the, uh, movement that supports, uh, you know, this kind of uh, idea of uh, injustice uh, that should be no injustice on so that infrastructure is not is not entirely there and and that is why it becomes so difficult for migrant workers to take up this issue we'll come to a moment um to you know what we can do to or what should be done to ad- to address wage theft but can you point to any data about the scale of the issue i don't know cases you've dealt with and... in any given year i i would say we were to, to be and that's what i'm saying this is the first time we've uh, we've called it as wage theft kind of thing mm-hmm. but in any given year if we would talk to our members and things like that about wage theft and uh, and try to put it together we never did that we've never done that uh, kind of thing put all the data together but uh, it would easily fall in the thousands it would easily fall mm-hmm. in the thousands uh, right now itself, uh, as we are, we, we, we have started now a documentation process for the sake of the campaign that we have kind of launched. We have started a documentation process and, and we are getting a lot of information, uh, a lot of people coming forward, workers coming forward, but not going to that final step of wanting it to be documented for some of the reasons I gave. Other reasons being some of them f- have almost become fatalistic in the sense of uh, they've some of them are sympathetic to their employers and they say look even the employer has suffered and if he's not given three months wages or whatever what to do i don't think i can get it back and so they don't want to make a complaint some of them come forward in the hope that we will be able to compensate thinking that we are calling them forward to make a complaint so that we will fi- be able to compensate them or something like that or have some funds to compensate from. And when they find out, no, it's going to take a longer process and there's no immediate kind of uh, support for them, uh, then um, then they don't see the point in it. So in that sense, the numbers don't get fully documented. But from the stories that we have heard, from the cases that we are looking at, we have seen already that this could easily be in the hundreds of thousands this could very easily be in the hundreds of thousands yeah, that's that's incredible and I'm, I'm glad that hopefully through the podcast we can also continue the great work that you've been doing already to raise awareness of this well i wanted to move on to i guess solutions next steps and so on and to start with what standards already relate to this you know in in the international frameworks and so on what can we point to to use as that basis to address this 
One is, of course, one is the contract that workers have. Many workers go on the contract and the contract, the wages are stipulated. So though one could just look at the breach of contract that has been happening in this regard. You know, the other thing is the ILO, at the ILO, there are standards. There is the protection of wages kind of a convention of uh, 1949. There is the minimum wage, minimum wage convention as well. And many countries of origin agree on some kind of minimum wage with host countries for their nationals. There is um, there is the equal remuneration convention as well, uh, which 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 should technically mean that uh, you know equal pay for equal work kind of thing, but that doesn't happen between nationals and migrants. So th there are standards out there. Uh, and again, there are bilateral agreements between countries of origin and destination and things like that. But the whole question is of implementing. The whole question is of implementing. And until countries of destination do not take this seriously and don't start looking at it systematically, kind of thing that this is uh, happening on a regular basis, uh, we are not going to see a solution to that. We have come to them very often in the past with this issue, and they have said the justice system is there, come and make a complaint. But again, like I said, the system doesn't work for migrant workers. It's almost as if you have to do an affirmative action kind of thing for migrant workers, given their particular context when it comes to justice mechanisms in countries of destination. This is probably a good time to just introduce justice for the justice for wage theft campaign as well. So, you know, first of all, tell us a bit about that and the story behind it. And then also tell us a bit more about what you're seeking to achieve, you know, what kind of changes you're trying to promote currently, you know, for these country uh, countries of destination. You know, the, the campaign itself, like I said, for the first time during the during the pandemic, at the, uh, the time of the repatriation, when we started getting migrant workers' stories coming back and telling us that they've not been paid their wages, they've been forced to to forced to uh, get on the repatriation flights and things like that, is then that we that we realized how big the issue is. And as MFA. Uh, the Center for Regional uh, uh, for Refugee, uh, for the Center for Cross Regional Movement (MFA CCRM) and and uh, Solid uh, uh, Solidarity Center and the SART of the South Asian Trade Union Council, kind of thing. Of course, uh, we MFA went out to them to say. I think it's time to launch this kind of campaign and call it for what it is, wage theft, which is a very new concept within the Asia region. Uh, and we did that first call on the first, uh, in June of last year and uh, basically calling for two things. One is to recognize as states are looking at measures to put in place for workers who have lost wages during the pandemic and things like that. And as national workers were being considered that migrant workers should not be overlooked under the framework of no one left behind of the SDGs and things like that. Unfortunately, states were not entirely looking into this. You know, so while, while there was some measures for migrant workers in terms of accommodation and testing and things like that, this issue of their livelihood and losing wages and things like that was not, was not, uh, was not being looked at. And interestingly, it was not being looked at by country of origin and or country of destination. And that is, that is where, that is where the campaign became even more uh, kind of pertinent, largely because we also saw that 
prior to the pandemic, practically every country of origin in the region looked at migrant workers as modern day heroes. So in every country you would, in their own local language, you would find migrant workers being called heroes kind of thing. And our trade union representative put it very well from heroes, we have gone down to zero because even the country of origin was not looking into how to be able to uh, uh, ensure that these migrant workers are not left behind kind of thing as they are being lost jobs. Some migrant workers lost their jobs and continue to be in the host countries, even if repatriation flights were available, largely with the hope that they would find some alternative livelihood because they saw no reason to come back because seeing that the conditions coming back home would be even far worse kind of thing than staying undocumented or without a job or looking for a, for a lesser job in the country of destination. So there was all this complexity which kind of we said, okay, we'll call it for what it is and start launch this campaign. And the, the nice, the thing about the campaign was when we launched it, what surprised us was how it resonated with so many other constituencies working on migrant worker issues, and and that was as you know that was an indicator that this is not it, it, the resonance was already an indicator to say everybody knows that this is a a, a systemic kind of issue that keeps recurring, but nobody dared to kind of call it out for what it is earlier than this kind of thing, you know, at, at the campaign level in our region, because we had ILO, we had IOM, we had academics, we had researchers, we had human rights networks, we had media people, everyone kind of zeroed in on the campaign kind of thing, came in to support it, endorse it, and things like that. And then we, we, we knew that it, it was something that resonated with so many different constituencies. And, and this is a campaign that we, we uh, the two dimensions to it kind of thing were one, to give some immediate relief, because whatever it is, we have to look at relief for migrant workers as they come back, because in many cases, migrant workers are the sole breadwinners of their family. When you lose remittances, and we are talking about remittances that were being sent like $200 a month, $250 a month that is being sent back to a family kind of thing for food, clothing, accommodation, education, health, and all these expenses kind of thing. You know, a family of four, a family of five depends on that kind of remittance and and when you see migrant workers coming back without this without wages without end of service benefits that whole lifeline is cut out then you know the impact of this pandemic on, on these families is far greater than what you would have in let us say with with uh, with uh, workers within a national context where there where there was more support being offered so for example even in the country in a country like the philippines uh, if uh, you know if a family had a migrant worker uh, whether that migrant worker had a job or not, lost the job or not in the pandemic, the, the family was not entitled to some of the social assistance that was given by the state. So it, it was as if the migrant workers were the last to be kind of considered uh, or to be considered in this whole scheme of, of, of things. And so we thought it was so important to raise this campaign and, and, and highlight the plight of migrant workers. So that immediate relief of give them their wages because we are not asking for more. We are asking to give them what is their due. That was it. That is the call. Give them what is their due kind of thing. You know, so that was one part of the campaign. The second part of the campaign is 
if it might be true, yes, that businesses cannot, uh, businesses may have failed or cannot pay workers and things like that. We had called for a fund to be established, a fund that by the host country kind of thing, in which it could pay off the workers and then recoup that later from the businesses, you know, through a staggered process of loan and things like that kind of thing, you know, that could easily have been done and that could easily still be done kind of thing, just to make sure that migrant workers are not the ones to suffer most under this kind of pandemic. And uh, the second part of the call was for uh, a, a reform of the justice system. Like I said, uh, before the pandemic in any given year, this was the bigger issue, biggest issue. Now if we are talking about building back better from the pandemic, then one of the things we will have to look at is how to reform the justice system. So it becomes much more easier for migrant workers if they have a grievance to take it up and to find, uh, and to find efficient uh, justice and uh, compensation for, for, for the wrong that is being done to them. You know, so that that is that is the campaign, and it continues till today. It's gained in momentum. There are different constituencies that have come together to support it, and and uh, it, we do. It, but it, the action that is required it is yet is yet to be deliberated on. Well, I mean, it's a fantastic campaign. I'm going to link to it as well in the show notes so that listeners can can check it out. And just to also ask about the people that this is affected? What are, the, what are the main countries of origin for the migrants most affected? So you are looking at countries like Nepal, Bangladesh, uh, Philippines, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, uh, Pakistan. These would be at least within our region, the countries that, uh, that would be most affected kind of thing uh, mm-hmm. as well. I know you've, I think you alluded to there not having been much action yet, but what has been, has there been any kind of reaction to your campaign or an interest stimulated that you can see amongst particularly the, the, the governments of the countries of origin who, who surely have a role to play? Interestingly, I mean, governments have acknowledged this, both countries of destination as well as countries of origin have acknowledged it, but they have not taken the next kind of step. Of course, you have a country like Qatar that has recently brought about some reforms and that has, and part of those reforms are within the wage protection system. But again, uh, we, uh, and some compensation and things like that has been uh, has been given, but we still get some cases from Qatar. We've had uh, the UAE, which has also tried to address this, uh, uh, this issue of non-payment of wages kind of thing. And there was, and it's in our campaign site, uh, this, this mobile kind of uh, court, uh, which went to labor camps and gave workers back their wages kind of thing. So countries are taking measures, but not, enough to to match the, the the issue kind of thing you know it, it's it, it's uh, where you've got to walk 10 steps kind of thing they're taking two kind of thing in this regard so and i and that and i think that's that's the big problem kind of thing countries of origin i, I also have not started what what we have called for basically and that is for both country of origin and country of destination that it would be very very simple if they wanted to to know the scale of the problem it's a very simple procedure that needs to be put in place if 
because uh, because we are still on repatriation flights, right? So for to get onto a repatriation flight, you have to register to it. And in all for, for you to, to register on the repatriation flight, we are asking the missions, country of origin missions, in the registration, why don't you put in there, do you have any grievance? Have you been paid your wages? You know, put that question in there so that we would know that and you would get that data. None of the countries of origin have done that. In fact, countries of origin like Nepal are even putting on their registration form to a, a statement saying, I have nothing, no complaint, no grievance kind of thing. And, and the migrant has to kind of sign that off sign off on that and then he or she is able to get on that repatriation flight out of fear of not getting on the repatriation flight migrants are signing you know so this is the, the country of origin missions are not just doing what could have been a very simple task of knowing the gravity of the issue so that is one area where countries of origin could have started a documentation process you know Okay, let us say it's difficult because of COVID and things like that and all the you know, lack of resources, lack of personnel at the mission, they could not do it. But then these country, these flights, as soon as workers come in, as soon as they arrive in the country of origin, there is a quarantine period and a quarantine kind of process. Within that quarantine process time, when you are gathering information, you could have got, you can gather the information at that time, but they are still not gathering it at that time. You know, so countries of origin are utter totally you know negligence over here kind of thing in terms of uh, wanting to even know the scale of the issue kind of thing take a look at it from the country of destination this is what we have told country of destination as well you cannot leave a country of destination except on these flights kind of thing so it would be so easy at the airport you know to say before boarding the plane, this is a complaint box. If you have any issues, put it here or things like that. You can easily do that. But again, countries of destination have not done that. They have said, oh, it's online. But like I said, the online process is so difficult for a migrant worker who has, who probably does not know the language or does not have the computer skills and things like that to go online and fill up the form and fear that if I do this, I might not be on the flight and things like that might be an issue. So, you know, country of uh, destination we are saying either collect it before they leave or even give the opportunity to say come and make a complaint in our mission so for example the uae embassy in the philippines can put up on its website that if anybody has a complaint who has been repatriated without wages and all can now make a complaint about it why not why don't you open up procedures like this to to come to know at least what is the gravity of the problem you know, because you keep asking us for the data when it is so easy for you if you had political will to collect that data, you know, but you want to continue to run this belief or to run the, uh, that, that this is, oh, these are a few cases and we've addressed them and things like this, this is not few cases. This is systemic and it's millions are involved. Yeah, well, I think it's great that you've outlined some of these solutions because clearly something needs to be happening, something needs to change here, and there are, and you've given some really actionable ways that that uh, changes can be made. And there's clearly, I mean, a lot of this seems to be enforcing laws that are already there. Hopefully, in the next year, in the next, in the coming years, we'll have some movement on this. Well, thank you very much, William, for all your insights and for for bringing this to the podcast. Uh, how can people connect with you and find out more about your work, the work of Migrant Forum in Asia, and what well, and the Justice for Wage Theft campaign? We can we can link to in the show notes. 
as far as uh, the justiceforwagetheft.com, the, that's the dot .org is the website you can go to. You can go to mfasia.org, which is MFA's uh, kind of uh, web page. You can go to facebook.com slash migrant forum in Asia. You can, our Twitter handle is twitter.com slash mfasia underscore. Uh, but I, I think if you want on the campaign itself, justiceforwagetheft.org would be the place to go to. Uh, or check out our face our web page which is mfasia.org email address mfa at mfasia.org brilliant thank you very much william you're a very powerful advocate for migrants in asia and migrants generally so thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and best of luck with the justice for wage theft campaign Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Migration and Diaspora podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can check out the podcast website at loxanharley.com forward slash podcast. There you can subscribe to the mailing list or get in touch if you want to be on the podcast. Be sure to follow the podcast via your favorite podcasting platform and leave a review if you can. Thanks again and see you next time.